That joke never gets old. Yeah. Well, it does get old for you. It doesn't get old for me. I'm, I'm looking forward to today. We've got, we've got one of those Sundays, one of those passages that we're, going to get, that we're going to delve into. So the Bible tells us that the Word of God, that the Bible is the Word of God, breathed out by God, and that it is here to thoroughly equip us for every good work so that Christians might be mature and lacking nothing. And Christians throughout the ages have experienced the blessing um, of having access to this Word to guide us into all the many situations of life. Uh, today's passage begins to delve into one of those themes where we find that the Bible is a very great treasure, that by the word of God is, the, is, is, is his servant warned, and in keeping it, there is great reward. Because our passage is about the Christian attitude of submission to civil government. If you manage to leave here today without feeling uncomfortable at any point during the day, I have not sufficiently preached this message. Um, and in our modern context, isn't that just a minefield of things? So my job today is to be a living sacrifice and to willingly step on every landmine in a single sermon to get all the controversy out of the way so that we as Christians can continue to live the life of, um, of, of fellowship together. Mike's a little bit afraid he's going to have to fire me after today. I can hear it in his voice down the front here. I almost feel the need to apologize that it has taken us this long to get to this passage, considering how relevant it has been to the life that we've all been living for the last, uh, for the last three years. So for what it is worth, I am sorry it has taken us this long to delve into this text in the context of a sermon. Uh, and yet these themes have already been guiding us as a church um, across recent times. There is a very real sense, this is another problem with a sermon like today's, that what I have to say in the context of a single sermon feels entirely inadequate to deal with the entire theme of what the Bible has to say about, about our relationship with government. Um, what I want to do is I want to give you a three-hour-long lecture delving into history and historical statements. Uh, that would be a delight to me, <laughs> at the very least, um, but we don't have the ability to do that in one go. Fortunately for you, what we have should fit, should fit within an hour. I've got two? Do I have three? Going for three? We've <laughs> got three down the front here. Three. You're going for, you're for four. Going for four. We had auctions at church on Friday night, and now I've got the bug. So I don't know if you realized, but the last three years of life has highlighted for us all just how urgent it is that we all be familiar with this biblical theme and its nuances. There is a reason why we need to know about this. Also, sadly, these last three years have revealed how woefully unprepared the church is, or should I say was, when we were tested. The pandemic brought with it a, a testing and a stretching of the boundaries of government authority, and Christians all over the planet had to figure out how to respond to a strange situation which lay outside of the experience of almost all of us, and sadly the response by both leaders in the church and in the government was not without blemish. Um, some significant part of the pain that we all went through could have been avoided had people been more willing to thoroughly consult the Word of God in both spheres of authority. We can be, and should be, generous, with both groups to some extent, 
probably as a result of the long peace that we had experienced, our understanding of these things had grown, in my opinion, anemic. And principles that were once very familiar to the church had grown foggy. It had been a long time since we had been tested in that way. But if I'm crystal ball gazing, this is not going to be the last time that this generation faces this test. And so we best grow deep in our understanding of this part of God's word in order to not repeat any avoidable mistakes. So why don't we, why don't we read what our passage has to say today, and then we'll get stuck into understanding. Where it comes from is in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. One of several places in the Bible where this theme is addressed, but this is one of the main ones. Romans 13:1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. I told you I'd offend you all by the end of today. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. It's a good word. For the last three years, this passage has been a hot topic, to put it mildly, with Christian leaders around the globe. There has been more than one unhelpful exaggeration of the meaning of this text. I can describe for you the two polar extremes. Perhaps you have encountered them already. Um, on, on both sides of this argument. On the one side of the argument, of the two extremes, was what was, in my experience at least, the majority view held to by a lot of influential denominational leaders, which was an extreme reading of this passage, in isolation from all the other relevant passages that speak to this same issue, for example, like those found in Romans 12 and Romans 14. And this end of things, represented a loud voice arguing that what this passage calls us to do is to submit to and obey all laws that government makes ever, pretty much without exception or qualification or limit. I, I call this exaggeration the, the blank check view, which did not adequately take into account the proper boundaries on all authorities that the Bible assigns to people in its entire length. Typically, these arguments were being made by those who felt that all of the government responses to the pandemic were proportionate and wise 
and wanted everybody else to do what they were told. And at times, this passage was their stick to beat those who disagreed and to call them bad Christians. It was used for, it was used as the justification for heavy-handed decisions, like the implementation of vaccine mandates, for example, like those implemented by the Anglican Church in Queensland, who made having the right vaccine status a condition of even volunteering in their churches, a decision which was quite personally relevant to some of you. There's one polar end of things. Now let's offend the other half of you. Over on the other extreme of the response, a smaller group, yes, but a loud one nonetheless, were those who strongly disagreed with the approaches, the approach taken by various governments around the world, and who in their zeal to maintain their right to dissent, robbed passages like this one of their clear, profound, and cross-shaped call. They were very concerned with describing the limits of this authority, but at times were less concerned with embracing what this passage is positively affirming. They whittled this away with qualifications and exceptions until, they t- uh, until their view of the word of God seemed to mean nothing at all. Their description of the meaning of this passage at times amounted to, this calls me to no change. And if you can read any part of God's word and conclude, this doesn't call me to change, you are not reading it correctly. It's a dangerous way to read any part of the Bible. At its worst, this end of things was Christianized politics, essentially. That charge could probably be leveled at both extremes, to be honest. But in their zeal to win a political argument, important as that issue may be, some have directly contradicted the word of God and robbed it of its power. As Christians, we are never to hold our political opinions more strongly than we hold our Christ. Have we sufficiently offended everybody? Of course, there are kilometers of nuance available between those two polar ends. But one of the strange features of the times in which we are living was that it became difficult to even discuss these things, at least in polite company. In reality, many sane voices fall well within those two boundaries. These are, that I've described to you, that the extreme ends that we should resist the impulse to embrace by committing the sin of oversimplification. There's nuance here. It's important that we understand it. It turns out that this passage is not here by accident because we are not the first generation of Christians for whom these issues have been relevant. The tension within the church of trying to understand how we approach worldly governments whilst belonging to a heavenly kingdom was right there from the very beginning of the Christian church. There's a a thing which I'm surprised that the Gospels don't discuss uh, at length, which is this. Surely, surely, there must have been at least one awkward moment, not long after Jesus called the Twelve, as a result of Jesus having called as apostles both Simon the Zealot and Levi the tax collector. A bit of uh, historical Um, context to help you understand what those two names mean. 
these two men called as apostles before meeting Jesus represented the two extremes of attitude towards the government in their day. Jesus called to himself amongst his closest followers a man who was a member of the violent resistance against the Romans, the zealot. He had made it his goal in life before Christ to take up arms and overthrow the invaders. Another man called by Jesus amongst his closest followers was a man who had spent the last who knows how many years collecting taxes from his own people on behalf of those invaders. I wish, like, I, I wish when they'd drawn the, the painting of the Last Supper that they had illustrated the lack of friendship <laughs> between these two men. Except that's at the other end of the story and it probably doesn't work. Surely there were some different, dif- different opinions between those two men. Surely there were some difficult conversations as those two people reconciled. Like, did Simon ever have to pull Levi aside at dinner and, and say, sorry, old chum, for that time I put a letter bomb in your office? This was the sorts of difference they began with. And yet, among the 12, Jesus included people with both of those two opposite natural instincts towards their present situation. And he brought them together, not only functionally, but as brothers. As then, so now. The goal of Jesus has not changed. The church is supposed to be the place where people with differing natural inclinations, people with different political leanings, find a common ground which supersedes those issues of the moment and are reconciled in a way which is impossible without our God. That's why this has to do with being a living sacrifice. Do not misunderstand. Jesus does not affirm all views on politics equally. But what he does do is call us to repentance and to trust in him as our highest certainty. It is in our shared submission to Jesus that we all find common ground with one another. So let's do this. How do we preach this passage within its biblical context? As I've said, it is impossible to cover every part of what the Bible has to say on these themes in a single sermon. So here's what I'm going to try. I would love to discuss this with you afterwards. Your questions will be very welcome. We're going to do this in two parts. Part number one, we are going to... we are going to consider from the wider biblical context what this passage does not mean. It's a strange way to preach a passage of the Bible, isn't it? The reason we're going to do that first is so that we can finish with saying what this passage does mean and allow God to have the last word. Both are his view. We're going to do this so that we will let the word of God shape our service today. Sound good? Let's go. Three thoughts about what this does not mean. There are some boundaries which we are meant to understand in all biblical passages like this one, 
which we find in other biblical passages. Here's the first boundary we need to understand. There are limits, there are boundaries to human authority at all times. Whenever God gives authority to any human, there are implied boundaries to that authority. For example, here at church, pastors have been given authority by God to lead the church in a great many ways. But we are not, Mike and I, the highest authority in this church. There is somebody over us and we are not at liberty to contradict him. His name is Jesus and he is in charge here. Any leadership from us that contradicts Jesus, you are free to ignore. In fact, you are biblically commanded to do so. Our authority is not limitless. Another example relevant to all of our lives. In the Christian family, husbands have been given a headship authority in the lives of their family members. And this fact in no way means that a husband has authority to do everything he wants whenever he wants. He cannot, for example, compel his wife to sin. Because there is a higher authority, which he is to serve with his lesser authority. As with families, as with churches, so with the authority of government. When Peter was brought before the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, which we read about in Acts 4, he preached a profound sermon before them, which he concluded with these words in Acts 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. Amen. It's easy for us to miss it. But in making this statement, Peter was directly contradicting statements made by the Roman emperors of his time. When this sermon was preached, these words were politically charged, not just spiritually charged. The Roman emperors made divine claims. There was a cult of emperor worship in the Roman Empire that when Peter proclaimed salvation in none but Jesus, he was flatly contradicting. Not because it was his goal to tick off the Romans, but because he declared Jesus as the highest authority, which just so happened to tick off the Romans. Do you understand? Or again, the apostle who wrote these words here in Romans 13 often found himself on the wrong side of the authorities in his day. How many times was Paul imprisoned by the Romans? Let it not escape our notice that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, whom he would later meet before the Roman emperor put him to death. Paul was not breaking his own instructions here in Romans 13 when he ticked off the Romans enough to get himself imprisoned. There are limits 
to civil authority. We should understand that. Here's the next way of describing it. The simplest rule of thumb, which describes the boundaries of all the authorities given to men in the Bible, can be said this way. Government, put, put any kind of leadership in here, any kind of authority in here. Government cannot tell you to do what God forbids. And secondly, government cannot prevent you from doing what God commands. They cannot compel you to action or inaction that is directly contrary to God's will for your life. Think here of Daniel in Babylon, who represents an excellent example of this balance for us. As a faithful Jewish man, he rose to a position of influence in Babylon, but when commanded to pray to the emperor, what is it with emperors? Not only did he refuse, but his response was priceless. We read it in Daniel 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had no, sorry, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, one of my favorite sentences in the Bible, as he had done previously. When the emperor of Babylon was fooled into making an unjust law that would prevent Daniel from worshiping his God, Daniel's response was to not change an iota, to do exactly what he had been doing the day before. His example for us communicates to us the limits of government, but also it communicates to us the way in which we resist when an unjust law is passed. Our resistance as Christians should be peaceful. This humble and holy resistance to unjust overreach is a beautiful feature of Christian conduct. Government cannot compel us to actively or passively disobey Christ. This principle has been guiding us as a church through much of our decision-making here over the last few years. Why don't we peer behind the curtain and discuss how that has worked? When Australian state governments were in the habit of implementing vaccine mandates as a requirement for church attendance, which thankfully never happened in Queensland, we as a church released a statement, as a, as a leadership team released a statement, which said that we were not able to comply with such a directive. Had we been forced into that uncomfortable position, it is your pastors who are the ones who would have been held legally responsible for breaking that law. But we were willing to be in that position to obey Christ and to love you. God has told us that as Christians, we are to meet together. That he has made us one in the church by removing the dividing wall of hostility between different kinds of people. There are not two tables that we fellowship around, but one. There is one Lord, one gospel, one baptism, and one church. And man should never try and separate what God has joined. We could not comply with such a ruling. We are not at liberty to do so. But when it came to masks, our response was very different, wasn't it? 
Which of God's positive or negative commands did a mask mandate require us to break? Regardless of what our personal opinions about them may have been. As a church, we were not going to kick someone out over that issue. God gave us no such authority. But we did stand here week in and week out and ask our church to comply with those rules. Actually, the hardest question for us to muddle through was the one about lockdowns. We don't have time to open that bag all the way up today. But if we ever do find ourselves as a congregation needing to figure out what to do with those again, these are some of the principles that are going to be central in that discussion. The simple fact is that simplistic or reactionary responses won't do. The truth is more complicated than that. Lastly, what this passage is not saying. This passage is describing the role of authorities in governing the civil sphere of our lives and in no way should be understood as saying that civil authorities have authority in the church or over your conscience. In the church or over your conscience. Civil government cannot make spiritual decrees over our worship. That is not what this passage is saying. This principle has a few names throughout the history of the church, things like the liberty of conscience, spiritual liberty. But in these two spheres, the emperor is not in charge. The government cannot make religious decrees and compel us to obey them. There is a specific understanding of the meaning of freedom in the Christian church. Christ has made us free to obey our God, free from the challenge of any other rule or authority. We are free to worship in the way that God commands without the interference of men. In matters of our faith, we obey God and not man. And though man might and has and will try to interfere, they do not act with God's authority in such matters. When they try, we must resist them. We must resist them. This, uh, this principle has been held to in a significant way by Baptists, in particular, throughout our history, a thing of which I'm quite proud. For example, there is a beautiful statement of this written by some of the earliest Baptists in a document called the Standard Confession, written in the early 1600s, where those saints expressed how they will respond to the government, how they will respond to governments that overstep their boundaries and try to compel forms of worship. They said, and we accordingly do hereby declare our whole and holy intent and purpose that through the help of grace we will not yield nor in such cases in the least actually obey them. Yet humbly purposing in the Lord's strength patiently to suffer whatsoever shall be inflicted upon us for our conscionable forbearance. Isn't that balanced and beautiful? There are so many more of those and I had to trim them all for the sake of time. Or let us take the individual conscience as an example, not just the 
freedom of the church. The whole, of the, the whole of Romans 14 is going to deal with that theme of individual conscience, and so we will gloss over it to some extent, but there are, there are some things that need saying. Christians, you need to obey your conscience before you obey government. You need to obey your conscience before you obey government. One obvious flashpoint came up over the last few years. God has not given to the government the authority to force you to put things into your body. It's not there. You, as Christians, have to make those decisions according to your own conscience. Because it is you who are the one who will give an account to God for what you do in and with your body. That is an issue for the individual conscience to decide And God has not given other people authority to override that decision. Your conscience has limits. Whole sermon for next week. If your conscience tells you, I have to set this person's house on fire, your conscience is contradicting God and you are wrong. But in the many gray areas in life, you have to be a grown-up. You will bear responsibility for your actions And so you have to prayerfully decide what to do. And we all must respect each other's rights to do so. There's the what it doesn't say. Now, what does it say? Here's what it does mean. This passage in Romans 13 is not here primarily to communicate to us the limits of that authority. That information is found elsewhere This passage is here to push back against our flesh and to establish the right kinds of authority in our life. There is a proactive call in this passage which describes Christian obedience. Here, the apostle and God through him actively calls us to something difficult. And if you can read this without thinking that sounds hard, you haven't understood it properly. The last thing we should take from today is not the boundaries on this authority, but the loudest thing we should hear today is the right version of this authority. Why don't we delve into our text and see how it is described. Here's our first principle. What we learn in Romans 13 is that God is not an anarchist. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says... Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. What we see here, and in other passages like this, there's another one of 1 Peter chapter 2, I believe is that it is God himself who has instituted authority structures into society. Not just in nations that think of themselves as Christian. That's not a description of Rome in the first century. In all societies. This passage tells us that it is not just authority in the church which has been ordained and instituted by God, but all authority that legitimately exists anywhere in the world ever 
because God himself is the source of all rule and authority. It is his to give. This understanding of governing authority is very important. It is the basis of the whole rest of the thing. It is what prevents us from making silly and unnecessary mistakes. God has instituted the authority structures of civil government. We're not saying that all the specifics of every governmental structure around the world has been ordained by God. What we are saying is that government has been ordained by God. Do you feel that? The hyper-individualistic, anti-authority end of the spectrum is out of bounds for us. The voice which pushed back against perceived government overreach with the catch cry of freedom is not the voice of the Christian or of the church. Freedom is not our highest goal. We are not baptized versions of William Wallace from Braveheart. Freedom! That's for Mike Pickett who asked me to mention Braveheart today. (laughs) Above freedom, above freedom, we value Christ and his lordship. Our cry is not freedom. Our cry is Jesus Christ and him crucified. All of the authority which government has comes from God. Because all authority comes from God. It belongs to him ultimately. And therefore our submission to authority is our submission to God. God has instituted government over people in order to bless us and to restrain the worst of human behavior. To bring peace and stability and prosperity. There is a positive vision here of the way the world should work and of what we should love. Christians are not hyper-individuals. We believe in civil government. The word of Christ compels us. And we believe in our civic responsibilities underneath, in submission to those governments. This does not only apply when it is Christians in government. When these words were written, Nero was emperor. By reputation, not a particularly Christian man. Something to do with throwing people to the lions, I've heard, for their faith. These principles from God applied underneath his unjust rule because they always apply. Always. This is the basis for all of our attitudes towards government. This is why Christians don't become violent revolutionaries. This is why Jesus told Peter to put away his sword and why Simon the Zealot didn't finish as Simon the Zealot, but Simon the Apostle. This is why we are content to exist within imperfect systems and to get on with living happy lives of worship. This is why we try our best to be good citizens. Because all authority comes from God. Reflect back to last week, Romans 12, 18, when we were told, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Here is a foundational reason to motivate us to live in that way. 
proper submission to government is part of our obedience to God himself, which means that to not have this attitude is sin. It is disobedience to God himself. It is a necessary part of Christian conduct that we try, so far as it depends on us, to cooperate with government wherever we live. Second thing it does say, civil government does have authority from God to compel you to behave morally and to punish wickedness. This is found in Romans 13, 3 to 5. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. As an issue of both conscience and and punishment avoidance, (laughs) we are to behave ourselves in an upright way in this world. As Christians, we already want to live morally. That's the conscience part. But God is wise and God understands the fallen nature of this world and God has not left the governing of human conduct as a self-selected honesty system. One of the valid reasons that God has instituted civil authorities is to restrain and to punish wickedness. There should be a criminal justice system in all societies. This is the will of the Lord. Remember last week when we talked about not pursuing personal vengeance against our enemies? Here is a passage which communicates to us that it is appropriate for the state to do what we cannot as individuals. The state should punish the wicked. He does not not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It is right that the wicked should fear them as they fear the Lord. As Christians, it is right that we work within such a system of of justice. For example... If someone steals from me, how do I respond as a Christian? I do not steal back in vengeance or assault them. I report them to the authorities whom God has appointed to punish the wicked. And then I, as an individual, continue to pray for and to bless the one who has wronged me, leaving vengeance to God. Do you feel the balance? The stick of the law, civil law, is there to encourage good behavior among fallen people and to restrain wickedness. Therefore, we as Christians believe (laughs) that it is necessary for us to work within such systems. One last thing that this passage does affirm 
and call us to. This is the one we won't like. Government does not have to be perfect before we start doing our best to work within it. Note here an admission for what it's worth. Some of you in this congregation have been mistreated over the last few years by governing authorities in both the state and the church. The pain and the suffering caused by that mistreatment is a tragedy, a thing which matters very much to the Lord our God. And none of that painful reality invalidates the proactive call of this passage that we should seek to submit and obey. Take, for example, the part about taxes, verses 6 and 7. Think this through with me. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Isn't that such a strong way to describe authorities outside the church, do you understand? They are ministers of God. Anastasia Palaszczuk is, in God's view, a minister of God. They are attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honour to whom honour is owed. The Apostle Peter would declare, honour the emperor, an evil, evil man. Do we really think that all of the taxes which were collected by the Roman Empire were put to perfectly godly uses? And yet here is an unblushing expectation that we as Christians would work within the system we find ourselves living. Feel free to engage with such systems to help them become better. But our cooperation starts before the system is perfect. Do you think your taxes are too high? Write a letter to your MP, have at it. And while they remain high, Pay them. Obey the speed limit. Even the silly ones near schools that have no rhyme or reason. So fast, I should qualify that more. The silly one near the, near the school that I live near. Everybody else can go slow, but there's one street where it's just, it's nonsensical. There's not even kids there. We've paid enough in fines by missing the speed signs already. So far as it depends on you, strive to live at peace with them. And none of their misconduct relieves you of that duty. This passage calls us all to a radical kind of living. A kind of living which is relevant and powerful and possible here in Australia in 2022, it is possible under communist dictatorships. It is possible under monarchies. It is possible under tribal elders. It is possible everywhere at all times forever. 
We worship Christ. He is our Lord. I am not free from his rule and reign as a Christian. And so I must, I must, I must strive to live at peace with them and to work with them and to honour and obey as far as conscience allows. So what do we conclude from all of this? I think we start by praying. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, gives us a place to start. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Let's obey that together now. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. That in your great wisdom and mercy and also your love for us, that you have given us your word in order to equip us for every good work. You have given us wisdom which is wiser than we are wise. You have described to us a holiness which is more holy than we are holy. We thank you in Christ and by your mercy that we have received through him, that we are rescued into a full life, here on this earth as well as in the next. It is our heart's desire, our Lord, that Christ be worshipped, that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord that all would know that there is salvation in no one else and that all would know that all who come to him confessing their sins, confessing his lordship, find salvation and redemption and life. Our God, we do not want to be free from your lordship, but in grateful worship, we lay our lives at your feet in glad submission that you would rule and reign in us. That in everything which you have decreed and described, you would have your way in us. We want to live lives of happy holiness, both now and forevermore. We want to experience what it is to have your banner over us as love. We want to know and be known as those who are delighted to obey you. And so in this sphere of life, would you have your way also? Would you teach us what it is to lay down our independence for the sake of Christ, whilst also knowing that you are our ultimate Lord? Would you help us to find the balance between desiring and hoping for and working towards systems of civil governments that are a blessing to all, that prevent injustice and punish wickedness. And in the meantime, 
Would you make us like our forebears, willing to gladly suffer all things in patience and humility in your name? To return blessing for cursing. To turn the other cheek. To bless those who persecute us. Father, today we commit to you in prayer those people who are in positions of high authority in our country and in our city. We pray your blessing upon them today. Father, we know that the ultimate source of all rule and authority is not derived from the demos, but from the theos, not from the people, but from the Lord. And we pray that all who administer government would submit to your lordship also. Would they know and experience gracious reconciliation with you through the name of Jesus Christ? Would you bring them to holiness that they would rule in holiness and in wisdom and in grace? Regardless of their political affiliation, regardless of our personal opinions of them, Lord, we pray that you would bless them greatly, that they may bless us greatly. We pray this in Jesus' name.